You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Listen, my children, and you shall hear of the midnight ride of Paul Revere. We all know that critically important story from American revolutionary history. One if by land, two if by sea, and Paul Revere riding to Lexington and Concord shouting, The British are coming! The British are coming! Except, he never made it to Concord. He was captured along the way. He didn't even see the lanterns. They weren't for him, they were for another rider. And it wouldn't do any good to be shouting that the British are coming. The whole point of this was to move the information secretly, and shouting it at the top of your lungs doesn't do that very well. But thanks to Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, the fable of Paul Revere's ride, like a lot of historical inaccuracies, persisted. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We only use 10% of our brains. The Inuits have a thousand words for snow. Suspected witches were burned in Salem. Einstein failed math as a child. And Cinco de Mayo is Mexican Independence Day. None of those statements are true, but you've probably heard them multiple times, and you know a lot of people who believe them. What is it about inaccurate information that not only helps it spread so quickly, but stick so stick to Thanks to all of the members of patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts for choosing this week's topic, an option that's available to members at all levels, even $2 a month. And most of our members are also getting their 25th of every month bonus episode. Bonus episodes are topics that are too small for a regular episode, or more often than not, too risque. So, if you want to hear me working blue and get some other perks, head over to patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts today. Tell me everything you know about pirates. I'll wait. Eye patch, earring, peg, leg, parrot, or walk the plank, Davy Jones locker, the whole nine, right? Well, that's how Robert Louis Stevenson pictured the marauders of the high seas, and he wrote about them in a book that sold a couple of copies, you might have heard of it, Treasure Island. While it may have spawned the last non-Disney Muppet movie, which I saw on a first date, Treasure Island took nearly as many liberties with pirates as the Jim Henson Company did. Stevenson can't hoard all the blame for himself, though. The rest goes to the writers and directors of Disney's 1950 version of Treasure Island, starring Robert Newton as Long John Silver. Newton's portrayal was massively popular reshaping our images of pirates while ingraining his specific rendition of the way they spoke into the Brocus region of even the smallest child's brain. Newton used his native dialect from the southwest of England, which is where the infamous and exaggerated R's came from. Of course, we don't have any recordings of ye olde pirate speak, but piracy was a multi-ethnic international affair. 
Many pirates hailed from non-English speaking countries, and even the British ones tended to hail from London, so the West Country dialect was anything but prevalent. Luckily though, accuracy isn't a requirement for Talk Like a Pirate Day every September 19th, which gets you a free Krispy Kreme donut. You get a dozen if you dress up for it. Pirates didn't bury their treasure to come back for it later. They weren't squirrels. It could have happened a few times, but not as a matter of protocol. For one thing, you might not live long enough to come back for it, so you'd better get to port and buy some common stock in hedonism. There's no evidence for plank walking either. The pirate handbook called for keel hauling, tying your victim to a rope and dragging them under the ship to be bashed about, cut up by nasty barnacles and or drowned. Speaking of a handbook, pirates did have codes of conduct and honor regarding how they treated one another. The codes were for maintaining order, fairly distributing the take, etc. It wouldn't protect prisoners, no matter how quickly they thought to say parlay. Blackbeard was known to cut off women's fingers in order to obtain their rings. The famous pirates weren't necessarily the best ones, either. The reasons you've heard of the ones you've heard of is that they were captured and either killed immediately, like Blackbeard, or brought to trial, where their exploits were immortalized in court records and newspapers. It's reasonable to assume that a pirate who managed to evade capture was better than one who got caught. The Skull and Crossbones, or Jolly Roger, is like an icon for pirates. But this flag was most certainly not flown by all pirates all over the world, if it was flown by any of them at all. According to Benerson Little's definitive The Golden Age of Piracy, The Truth Behind Pirate Myths, the idea that all pirates flew the Skull and Crossbones is a complete myth. Captain Kidd, for example, never flew under a black flag, opting instead for English colors or a dark shade of red. Pretty much every pirate flag you can think of, as Little states, is a modern invention with little historical basis. According to Little, the perpetuation of the partially or entirely false pirate flags is just marketing. Speaking of colors, pirates themselves came in many. Pirate crews were multi-ethnic, with many crews featuring upwards of one-third freed slaves, many of whom were brought on board after raids on seaside plantations, who had equal rights to the rest of the crew. It would be naive to think that all white pirates treated all black pirates well, but recent research shows that a pirate ship was one of the best places for a black individual in the time of global slavery. What really mattered was how hard a person worked and how hard they fought. The same atypical equality also extended to women who could hold their own. In fact, the most successful pirate in world history, by a wide margin, was a Chinese woman named Ching Shi Chen, who commanded a fleet of 80,000 sailors and negotiated total amnesty and a lordship for herself when she retired. Speaking of success, it's been another great week for interaction with the Brainiacs. We got a review on our Apple Podcasts page, formerly iTunes, which we haven't gotten in a while. This one comes from a Twitch streamer, Dan Wilburn, and that's Will with two L's if you want to check him out, who says, Moxie is amazing and very knowledgeable. She has an amazing voice for podcast. I am all around impressed. This is perfect for a commute or just relaxing. Thanks, Dan. <laughs> 
I also want to thank some of our fans over on Twitter, particularly Augie Peterson, Richard Enriquez, The Chronicles Podcast, and The Anxenity Podcast, who all retweeted the episode post. You can find that after the episode comes out on Tuesday, pinned to the Twitter profile at BrainOnFactsPod. It's a big help to me and to your fellow Brainiacs to let them know the new episode is out. And you'll hear more from your fellow Brainiacs later in the episode. 98% of Americans are immigrants or descendants of immigrants. Regardless of which old country your family came from, odds are good that your last name was changed as they came through Ellis Island. Or that you think their last name was changed at Ellis Island. This one immigration processing facility holds a near-mythical place in American history. From January 1st, 1892 to November 12th, 1954, Ellis Island was the first stop for over 12 million new Americans. One thing Ellis Island is not, though, is the home of the Statue of Liberty. Lady Liberty stands on Bedloe Island. Consider that a bonus correction. If an immigrant made it as far as Ellis Island, they were likely to be allowed into the United States. Only the people in third-class steerage had to undergo much of an inspection at Ellis Island because officials believed that, quote, if a person could afford to purchase a first- or second-class ticket, they were less likely to become a public charge in America due to medical or legal reasons. The 500 or so employees at the station had to work quickly during the first waves of immigration, processing each immigrant in a matter of four to seven hours, with each inspector interviewing as many as four to five hundred people a day. On a single record-breaking day in 1907, almost 12,000 immigrants were processed through. So with all that work to do, who has time to be making up new names? Or a reason to? While yes, some name changes probably happened, Ellis Island inspectors were not responsible for recording the incoming immigrants' names. According to Vincent Canato's book, American Passage, The History of Ellis Island, Inspectors never wrote down the names of incoming immigrants. The only list of names came from the manifests of steamships, filled out by ship officials in Europe. In the era before visas, there was no official record of entering immigrants except these manifests. When immigrants reached the end of the line in the Great Hall, they stood before an immigration clerk with the huge manifest opened in front of him. The clerk then proceeded, usually through interpreters, to ask questions based on those found in the manifests. Their goal was just to make sure that the answers matched. Any errors or changes in a person's name were more likely to have happened before they boarded the boat. Inspectors only altered a name if they were persuaded that a mistake had been made in the spelling or the writing of the name, which could certainly happen, especially in a time with less literacy. Even then, the original name was struck through, but remained legible. There's also evidence that some immigrants themselves changed their names, either when they bought their ticket in their mother country or when they arrived, for a variety of personal reasons, including to Americanize their family. Bonus fact, the first person processed through Ellis Island was a 17-year-old Irish girl named Annie Moore, who was traveling with her younger brothers to be reunited with their parents and older brothers, who had come to America four years earlier. 
For years, it was thought that Moore had married an Irish-American, moved to New Mexico, and met a tragic end in a streetcar accident in Fort Worth, Texas in 1923 that orphaned her five children. Those children, and their children, were invited to various official ceremonies at both Ellis Island and in Ireland. However, it was discovered in 2006 that that Annie Moore had been born and raised in the United States, and the first one through Annie Moore lived her entire life in a few square blocks of Manhattan's Lower East Side. Earlier this week, I reached out to your fellow Brainiacs at Facebook and Instagram.com slash YourBrainOnFacts, as well as on the Twitter, asking, What persistent historical inaccuracies are you sick of hearing? Emily Prokop from the Story Behind podcast shouted, Pilgrims didn't have buckles. I want to cross out all the buckles when my kids bring home Thanksgiving drawings. Bob Abbott from the Very Important Veterans Affairs podcast Coming Home Well reminds us that Viking helmets didn't have horns. The U.S. didn't defeat Germany, Russia did. 93% of casualties on the German side were incurred fighting Russia. The U.S. didn't win the Cuban Missile Crisis. Instead, they backed down by removing nukes from Turkey first. And this is a direct quote. And holy crap, people, Napoleon was not short. And Bernie Blankenship wishes all of us to remember Ben Franklin didn't invent electricity, saying, I'm not even sure why that became a thing. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. Calm Cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds, like ocean waves and crackling fires. All of our episodes are designed to help you relax and to fall asleep fast. Calm Cove is brought to you by the team behind Sleep Cove, the sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis, meditation and stories. So if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight, search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night. Sometimes all it takes to ingrain a myth into the public consciousness is a single book, and people don't even have to read the book for it to work. Take, for instance, 1992's Sharks Don't Get Cancer by I. William Lane, Ph.D., and Linda Comack which claimed shark cartilage contained cancer-fighting elements, and so not only do sharks never develop tumors, but 
Powdered shark cartilage is an effective treatment for cancer and numerous other conditions. And as luck would have it, they had shark cartilage pills you could buy, as well as a follow-up book four years later, Sharks Still Don't Get Cancer. However, and to no one's surprise, there is no scientific evidence that shark cartilage is useful in treating or preventing cancer or any other disease. Lane became interested in the potential health benefits of shark cartilage after watching a CNN story about a story in science that found that shark cartilage inhibited blood vessels from growing toward tumors, which is a bit like sharing an article after only reading the headline. The idea that sharks don't get cancer seems to stem from scant clinical evidence that cartilage has anti-angiogenic properties, i.e. inhibits the development of blood vessels that are crucial to the growth of tumors. And since shark skeletons are made up of cartilage, a non-critical mind would assume they can't get cancer. Recent studies have shown that, while incidence of cancer in sharks and rays and such does seem below average, they have been found with cancerous tumors, including cancer of the cartilage. While cartilage may have anti-angiogenic properties, eating powdered shark cartilage has not been shown to work as a treatment or preventative, because, if for no other reason, the constituent parts of the powder aren't absorbed across the intestinal wall and into the bloodstream. Highly dubious clinical trials were conducted in Cuba and Mexico to test Lane's theory by specifically testing cartilage products made by Lane Labs, which was run by his son, Andrew. In 1997, the FDA issued a warning letter that stated, in part, You stated that Lane Labs makes no drug claims for these products. However, there are drug claims in the labeling of Benefin and Skin Answer. For example, claims made for Benefin include treatment of arthritis, psoriasis, and cancer, as well as, more specifically, breast cancer, prostate cancer, and sarcoma. Dr. Lane's brochure for the product Skin Answer specifically claims the product is Dr. Lane's next cancer breakthrough. In 1999, the FDA initiated a lawsuit to stop them from marketing Benefin, as well as Skin Answer, a glycoalkaloid skin cream as a treatment for skin cancer, and MGN3, a rice bran extract as a treatment for cancer and HIV. Now, I'm not a doctor, but I'd like to think that if rice bran killed the AIDS virus, some actual doctor would have discovered that by now. In June 2000, Lane Labs USA, Andrew Lane, I. William Lane, and something called Cartilage Consultants, Inc., agreed to settle Federal Trade Commission charges that they had made unsubstantiated claims that Benefin and Skin Answer were effective against cancer. The complaint notes that Lane Labs falsely represented that the FDA had evaluated the effectiveness of Benefin. Terms like non-toxic cancer therapy, cancer treatment, and cancer survivor were used in their website's meta tags to help drive Google results. The settlement also included a $1 million judgment, with $550,000 of it to go to the FTC and the remaining $450,000 to pay for a clinical study of shark cartilage sponsored by the National Cancer Institute. In July 2004, back in the FDA's case, a judge ordered Andrew Lane and his company 
to make restitution to anyone who had purchased the products in the preceding five years. The judge also ordered all inventory of the products destroyed, except for a quantity of benefin that may be needed for research purposes. Noting that illegal promotion of the products had continued despite the FDA's warning letter and the FTC's cease and desist order, the judge described the defendants as untrustworthy and issued a permanent injunction against misrepresenting any product in the future. The reason that these snake oil products are so dangerous is that even if the product itself is not harmful, it distracts people from getting legitimate treatment that they need. Plus, the fishing of sharks for manufacturing shark cartilage products endangers their population and puts one more bullet in the back of our struggling marine ecosystems. Recently, researchers in Australia noticed a large tumor protruding from the mouth of a great white shark, as well as another mass on the head of a bronze whaler shark. The great white's tumor measured one foot or 30 centimeters long and the same amount wide. In total, scientists have documented tumors in at least 23 different species of sharks. Sharks get cancer said David Schiffman, a shark researcher and doctoral student at the University of Miami. Even if they didn't get cancer, eating shark products won't cure cancer any more than me eating Michael Jordan would make me better at basketball. Which is possibly the best analogy I've heard all week. And over on our Twitter feed, fellow podcasters and brainiacs alike shared their frustrations at persistent misrepresentations. The Bunny Trails podcast is tired of children being taught the story of George Washington cutting down the cherry tree, that humans only have five senses, or that you can see the Great Wall of China from space. You can see a lot of human activity from space, but not the Great Wall. Richard Enriquez is frustrated by the whole until Columbus discovered America, people thought the world was flat thing isn't true. And there seem to be more flat earthers now than there have been in centuries. And he's right. We look back on a few pieces of outlier evidence to tell ourselves that people thought the earth was flat when the vast majority of them believed it was round because people had known it was round since ancient Greece. Columbus was trying to prove that it was smaller than everyone else had said it was. And he also thought it was shaped like a pear. Which is fitting because the whole thing went pear-shaped. Boring Books for Bedtime podcast points out that lemmings do not commit suicide en masse by running off cliffs. That was completely manufactured by Disney filmmakers in the 1950s. And don't get me started on the many, many things they made up for the movie Nanook of the North. A fellow with the great handle of Bacon Dad points out that the Bible doesn't say how many wise men showed up to greet the young Jesus. Could have been three could have been 33. And fittingly, the American Revolution podcast says, This one always gets me. The American Revolution started because colonists thought taxes were too high. Another animal-based misbelief comes from a paper whose author is still trying to walk back what he's written. But you can't unring a bell. And that's the idea of the alpha wolf, and by extension, the alpha male of any species, including humans. Although the notion of the alpha wolf or the alpha male seems thoroughly, deeply entrenched in our language, the idea of the alpha didn't come about until 1947, when animal behaviorist Rudolf Schenkel 
published the paper Expression Studies on Wolves. During the 30s and 40s, Schenkel studied wolves, attempting to identify a sociology of the wolf. In his research, Schenkel identified two primary wolves in the pack, a male lead wolf and a lead bitch. We are, of course, using that word in the scientific sense. He described them as the first in the pack group. By incessant control and repression of all types of competition within their respective sexes, both of these alpha animals defend their social positions. Thus, the alpha wolf was born. Throughout his paper, Schenkel also drew frequent parallels between wolves and domestic dogs, often following his conclusions with anecdotes about our household canids. The implication is clear. Wolves live in packs in which individual members vie for dominance, and dogs, their domesticated brethren, must be very similar in that respect. This is what has led many dog trainers to advise their clients to assert themselves as the alpha, such as eating before the dog and making sure that the dog walks in the door after you. A key problem with Schenkel's wolf study, though, while they did represent the first close study of wolves, Schenkel studied two packs of wolves living in a Swiss zoo. However, his study remained the primary source on wolf behavior for decades. Later researchers would perform their own studies on captive wolves and publish unsurprisingly similar findings on the dominant and subordinate leader-follow relationships within captive wolf packs. The notion of the alpha wolf was entirely reinforced by wildlife biologist L. David Metch in his 1970 book, The Wolf, the Ecology and Behavior of an Endangered Species. Metch spent several years during the 60s studying wolves in Michigan's Isle Royale National Park for his PhD thesis, echoing Schenkel's notions of alpha wolves and competition-based pack hierarchies. Metch's book became a hit and is still in print to this day, though he now says he wishes it wasn't. In more recent years, animal behaviorists, including Metch, have spent more time studying wolves in the wild, you know, where they live and act like wolves. And the behaviors they observed have been markedly different from what was observed by Schenkel and the other watchers of the zoo-bound wolves. In a 1999 paper, Alpha Status, Dominance, and Division of Labor in Wolf Packs, Metch wrote, The concept of the alpha wolf as a top dog ruling a group of similar-aged compatriots is particularly misleading. His study of wild wolves found that the wolves live in families, two parents with their younger cubs. Wolves don't seem to have an innate sense of rank. They're not born leaders or born followers. In Nature, Metch writes, wolves split off from their packs when they mature and seek out opposite-sex companions with whom to create new packs. The male and female co-dominate the new pack for a much simpler, more peaceful reason. Their parents. The alphas are simply a mommy and a daddy. The offspring follow the parents as naturally as they would in any other species. No one won the role as pack leader. The parents assert dominance over their offspring by virtue of being parents. Metch writes on his website, Wolf News and Info, that his original book is currently still in print, despite my numerous pleas to the publisher to stop publishing it. And this doesn't mean that wolves don't display any social dominance, of course. Dominant behavior and dominance relationships can be highly situational and vary greatly from individual to individual, even within the same species. 
It's not the entire concept of wolves displaying social dominance that was dispelled, just the simple hierarchical pack structure that's topped by the alpha wolf. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. Though we'll take one more shot at correcting the dude bros, chads, and incels who claim that alpha males are found also in chimpanzees, our closest genetic relatives. In chimps, the alpha male is the most dominant, most aggressive, and that means he has first access to food, resources, and mates. Well, contrary to popular belief, the most aggressive male chimp isn't necessarily the leader. Often, smaller, more mild-mannered males can become dominant by doing favors and grooming the other chimps. And chimps aren't our closest genetic relative. The bonobos are. Bonobos who live in a matriarchal society. They're also really sex and sex work positive, using sex in almost all of their social interactions. And that does include encounters between bonobos of the same gender. Unlike other primates, human social hierarchies are constantly in flux, and no one is the same person in all situations. You might be the dominant male at home, but all bets are off when you go to work, hang out with your friends, or interact with anyone for any reason. Human society is just more complicated than that. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. Thanks again to everyone who contributed to the posts and helped us share on the social media this week. And I can't talk about it just yet, but I have not one, not two, but three secret projects in the works. Keep your sunny side up. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.